0: Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres, as well as the folklore and history that inspired it. This is episode 56 of Haunted Muse, and the 13th episode of my novel, The Wolf You Feed, presented here as a weekly serial. It is set in 1858 and written in epistolary format. So, here we go. The Wolf You Feed. From the Diary of Frontier Teacher May Ulrich, August tenth, eighteen 1858 After saying goodbye to Penny and repacking my trunk, I picked up my wagon and headed over to Gad's pub for some dinner as I waited for Cotter. Gad was in fine spirits and made me hash browns with cheese. I never realized how much I missed cheese until I'd gone weeks without it. And an omelet with peppers, onions, and salsa on top. He seemed happy to talk about almost anything, and I was glad that I planned to travel this last part of my journey with Carter after I spoke with him. If any man can give you the lay of the land and the people in it around here, it's Cotter, Gad said, polishing the glassware. He's a square one. Good friend to have. We passed the time in casual conversation about the people I'd likely meet in Auraria and what kind of students their children might be. However, when I attempted to turn the conversation in the direction of his wife, Nasha, and why I hadn't seen her since we'd arrived in town, Gad suddenly remembered something urgent in the kitchen that he had to do. He left me to finish my meal alone at the empty bar. Even to her husband, it seems, Nasha is somewhat of an enigma. I didn't have to wait long, though, as Carter came up riding on his horse at sunset. It was a dappled gray gelding with streaks in his mane, the kind of horse more suited for an old farmer, I thought, than a man who traveled all the time. He saw me sizing up the horse and commented, He might not look like it, but Troy here is the smoothest riding horse you've ever seen. Patting his horse's neck, Cotter smiled. His grin was honest and broad, but his lips were a bit too thin for his angular face to be considered truly handsome, and his teeth something about his teeth. They were perfect, which was disconcerting. Not only were they dazzlingly straight and white, certainly unlike the teeth of any outdoorsman I'd ever seen before, but the canines were very long and pointed, like those of a large dog. His smile wasn't unpleasant, just not quite natural somehow. Catching me looking quizzically at him, he resumed his usual stoic expression. Carter seemed to be the sort of person who was perfectly content to stand silently until someone else started a conversation. Brandy told me you were a big reader and lover of the theater. Yeah, that comes from my mama, Carter said, beckoning me outside. She was an actress. We lived in Savannah for most of my childhood. She worked in a stock company of actors there. It's sort of a long story from a long time ago. He swung himself up onto Troy's back in one smooth motion, and I climbed up into my own little blue cart, taking the reins of my bay mare. We've got almost four days between here and Auraria, and as you can tell, I pointed the tip of my new leather crop toward my trunk of books in the back, I love a good story. Carter smiled again. This one was longer, I think, because he felt more secure looking away from me. Been around a lot of men with bad teeth in my lifetime. I got the impression that he was ashamed to let me see him smile for some reason, which is odd considering how strangely perfect his teeth were. Waiting until we were both out of sight and earshot of town, Carter began telling me his story. It went something like this: I was born on Christmas Day, 1829. My mother, Charlotte, as I'm sure you know if you've been talking to Brandy on the way over here, was Green Russell's eldest sister. She is about 20 or so when I was born, and Uncle Green was about 10. Anyway, they'd just struck gold that summer in Georgia, near the original Auraria, and Dahlonega, and half a dozen other places, all on Cherokee lands. Up until that point, the whites and Cherokee had gotten along better than most in North Georgia, better than they had in North Carolina anyway. And many had married one another, including my parents. But all that changed after the gold was found. North Georgia mountain country wasn't good for growing cotton, like down in the Delta. So when something was finally found of value, all the poor white folks thought it was finally their turn to lay claim to a piece of it. They wanted to get rich like all their slave-owning cousins down on the plantations. Trouble was, the land wasn't theirs to take. It belonged to the Cherokee, but the state of Georgia didn't care. They let white settlers go in and stake claims to whatever they wanted. The Cherokee tried to fight it the proper way. They took their case all the way to the Supreme Court, but they lost. The state of Georgia swooped in and took their land, the gold along with it, and gave it to whichever poor white folks could get there first. Then things got violent. When many of the Cherokee refused to leave, President Jackson sent the army in to make them go rounded them up like cattle and pushed them west, killed all the ones who refused. My father was one of them, shot dead, standing unarmed in his own front yard. Mama found him lying there when she got home that evening. She'd been up at her father's place that day, ironically, arguing over what to do with me, since as a white woman with a half-Cherokee son, it was likely that she'd be forced out west too. Her father and brothers wanted to stake their claim for gold, and ultimately they did. Made a bundle off of it, too. Mama would have none of it. She always said that it was blood money, and I reckon it's true. Blood money stolen from the Cherokee who were forced off their land in the mountains that built North Georgia just as much as the blood beaten out of the backs of African slaves in the cotton country down south in the Delta. But it don't seem that nobody gives a damn about either one of us. The state of Georgia still stands, and the dome on top of that college in Dahlonega is still solid gold. They keep talking like there'll be a war of some sort about it one of these days, but I still say it won't fix nothing. A lot of high-minded talk about how America was founded for religious freedom, but that's all bullshit to me. The only temple that America's ever worshipped at consistently was the Temple of the Almighty Dollar. Might be a good idea to start putting all that on the money. In gold, we trust. Carter paused, chuckling bitterly to himself, and began again. Anyway, nobody wants to hear a phil- philosophical lecture from a cowboy. What happened next is Mama and Grandaddy had a big fight, in which he told her that she was a traitor to the family if she didn't go along with their move onto the Cherokee lands. If she tried to run away, he refused to allow her to use the family name for me. At that point, everyone knew that she couldn't use my father's real name if she wanted to stay in Georgia because of the Cherokee removal. Not having a white, American-sounding name could have been a death sentence for me. So Mama, who always had a theatrical streak even before she became an actress, told her father that if she couldn't use his name and she couldn't use her husband's name, then she would give me the name of a random traitor and teach me to be proud of it. Hence, she changed my name, on the spot, to Carter. The traitor who was killed at the beginning of Macbeth, I said, realizing the connection. Yep, he replied. Then, when Granddaddy asked asked her what my first name would be, Mama told him that was it. Just Carter. Because there was no justice in this world but the fact that she and I had each other, and that was enough. So, the name stuck. I've been just caught her all my life. Mama ran away to Savannah and joined a theatrical company there. She was pretty and talented and made a fine career of it. Enough to send me to a good school there in the city where I learned all of the things that boys going to college are supposed to learn. Languages, math, science, the whole nine yards. But none of that interested me as much as being on the stage. Growing up sitting in the wings of a theater, you kind of catch the fever of it, if you know what I mean. By the time I'd turned 14 or so, the first summer that Mama got sick, I thought I'd made up my mind that's what I would do. But Mama came down with tuberculosis, and over the next couple of years, she kept getting sicker and sicker until she couldn't act anymore. I wasn't quite old enough to take up serious parts yet to earn any real money, and she insisted that I keep going to school until I finished. She died in January, just after I'd turned 16. By that time, she'd been up in the hospital for months. We'd lost our apartment, and her stage manager was letting me sleep in the basement of the theater, so long as I'd keep the place clean. My tuition, though, had been paid through the end of the year, and I had taken enough courses to graduate, so I took my diploma, and I left. Where did you go? The number one place I shouldn't have. Back to Mama's family. I had heard that they'd done very well in the gold rush there, and I thought maybe they'd be willing to share a bit of it. Enough for me to go to college on, at least, so that I could teach school for a few years Maybe, or at least they could pay me to do some kind of work while I was putting on enough age to play better roles in the theater. Sounds stupid, I know. Why would they ever hand over money to the kid whose mother had run away and named him after a traitor? By that time, Uncle Green had grown up and was tired of being outshined by his father and older brothers. Itching to strike out on his own for this new gold country out west, Uncle Green convinced me and a bunch of our Cherokee relatives to come along, promising us each a share of whatever we found. Stupidly, I believed him. Maybe it was the romantic in me, thinking I'd come out here and have some great adventure and come back rich enough to buy my own theater. But, of course, none of that ever happened. I never made it to California. By the time we got into, well, about where we are now, I was really sick. Having watched Mama go downhill for so long, I knew what it was the tuberculosis. Uncle Green did too, and it scared him. When I got too sick to ride on my own, he set me off right here in this desert. Don't know where exactly. I was too delirious by then, but it was somewhere between here and the cave we'll come up on tomorrow. Here, stopped again, though I could see his mind still churning. The lines on his angular face pulled tight, as I could tell he was working through some old thoughts. I kept waiting for him to go on, to tell the part of the story that I knew should be coming next, about how he woke up in a cave surrounded by wolves that saved his life in some mysterious way. However, he didn't, and I didn't want to press him. I checked my watch. It was almost five in the morning. We'd ridden all night as he'd told his story, and the sun would be coming up soon. I wondered if we'd stop and make camp at last, sleep in the daytime hopefully, as I was completely worn out and very sore. Finally, Carter turned to me with that wolfish grin of his. (laughs) That old bastard didn't kill me, though. Not yet. And the irony of all that is here we are, one more time, on the other side of the country. Me, the half-Cherokee, whose daddy died trying to keep the gold for his people, trying to make sure that white men like Green Russell don't push all the other tribes off their land and steal their gold too. His grin erupted into a wild cackle. (laughs) It's like that part in Ezekiel. A circle within a circle, a wheel within a wheel, over and over and over again. And in every rotation of it, people like me keep getting run over. Then he muttered under his breath. But not this time, damn it. This time, the wheel stops. Pulling his horse to a stop. Carter hopped down abruptly and started untying the bundles for his bedroll and tent. He pointed to a flat spot on the ground under a few scrubby trees nearby. Shade'll be on that side when the sun comes up. You'll want to pitch your tent facing west so that it isn't in your eyes when you're sleeping. We'll set out again at sunset. I prefer traveling at night. It's, uh, he seemed to search for the right word, settling on quieter. Is that all right with you? I agreed, and we spoke no more as we pitched our tents and settled in. He made no mention of food, so I settled on some cornbread, cheese, and leftover bacon I'd save for my breakfast at Gads. I'd brought ten food and biscuits for the rest of our few days, but not any cookware. For some reason, I hadn't given any thought at all to what Carter might eat, or if we'd be sharing meals at all. Thinking back over the night as I lie here writing this entry, I find many oddities about Carter and our journey so far. But the strangest one to me is the fact that he travels at night because it's, quote, quieter. For a man who talks all night about himself, he goes to great lengths to maintain quiet around him otherwise. He might be a great tradesman and negotiator, but I've seen enough plays and been around enough actors to know when I've seen one desperately in need of an audience. Calder's truly a man who's missed his calling if he doesn't go back to the theater, because out here, it's clear his only audience is me. This is the end of May's August 10th journal entry. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode of The Wolf You Feed. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you.